you at this time to turn with me in the uh, book of Psalms. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with how to find the Psalms, pretty much divide your Bible right down the middle and you'll fall into the book of Psalms. Um, So it's, it's kind of right in the middle and there's enough of them that you're bound to get it the first time. We're looking at Psalm 21 this morning which is a, um, a pair, a, it is paired with Psalm 20, which we considered last week. The title of last week's message was uh, prayer, for the day of the pr- prayer for the Day of Trouble. And today, its counterpart is Praise for the Day of Triumph. So if you keep those two themes in mind, the two psalms will make sense. Like the preceding psalm, Psalm 21 is a royal psalm, a kingly psalm. It's one of many psalms in the Psalter that concern the regal office of David and his dynasty. Psalm 2 is perhaps the best known and serves as a kind of introduction, along with Psalm 1, to the whole of the Psalter. So this double one-two punch as we come into the Psalms sets forth the Messiah King from the very get-go. Psalm 45, Psalm 72, the universal reign of the Son. And Psalm 110, of course, is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And there are others. Royal Psalms point to Christ in a very, uh, if not an explicit way, in a very implicit way. Uh, They reveal him as the last king of the line of David, uh, the one in whom we celebrate during the season of Advent, who would come and rule over the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there would be no end. And so uh, Christ is the end of all Scripture. He is the end of the law. He is the end of of, uh, the reading of the Psalms. On the face of it, this psalm celebrates the answer to the prayer that is prayed in, verse, in, in Psalm 20. Uh, in that psalm, there are petitions that are offered. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble, it begins. And it continues, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions or your requests. And it ends, toward, and toward the end, it says, may he answer us when we call. Clearly, Psalm 20 is a psalm of a request, calling upon God to hear us and to answer our prayer, particularly in the day of trouble, in whatever way that trouble may come to us. Psalm 21 responds to that, those repeated requests to hear. It responds in joyous celebration to the success and the protection that is prayed for in the previous psalm. And together, these ought to be a great encouragement to us because throughout the course of our life, we are facing one trouble after after another. Life is lived in the valley of the shadow of death. And yet the Lord, in his grace, would lead us to the mountaintop, which is where Christ is seen and Christ is found. And yet, we are told that that good shepherd is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Before we consider 
Psalm 21, we must consider the link of what lies before. In Genesis 3.15, there is a promise. The promise is, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman. The, the Lord speaks to Satan. A conflict between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. I will put enmity between the two. And your seed and hers. He shall strike your head. That veiled promise that the seed of the woman will deal a death blow to the kingdom of darkness. But you will strike his heel. Uh, recognizing that he will be wounded in so doing. He who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. With his stripes we were healed. The kingdom clash, as it were. And when we are bought with the price of Christ's death and transformed by his spirit, we are brought out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And that is the huge backdrop that lies in the whole scope of scripture so when we come to a psalm like this that speaks of trouble and triumph this pair is put into the larger context of scripture and leads us to the savior we must consider this link the previous psalm for example is that prayer of the day of for the day of trouble psalm 21 is considered by some to be paired intentionally with Psalm 20, as I do. It's a praise for the day of triumph. It's an anticipated and victory celebrated. But we must also consider the link with what lies afterwards. And that is, as I've intimated, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Psalm 20 could easily have been found on the lips of Jesus as he made his way to Calvary to experience the fullness of his humiliation, the fullness of his descent into Hades. Psalm 21, likewise, could easily be found in the heart of Jesus as he walked triumphantly out of the tomb, alive, victorious, in the throes of his exaltation. And it clearly is on the mind of Jesus as he prepares for his return and judgment and glory. And let us not forget these things. Such psalms are part of the flow of the biblical storyline. And therefore, they pick up the thread, the red thread, as it were, and give us insight in this moment of time. Let us hear the reading of God's word to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices in your salvation, how greatly he, he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. You have, been, you have met with him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you, 
and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestowed on him. For you make him, for you make him most blessed forever, and you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. The fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not concede, succeed. And you will put them to flight. Your, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The fundamental point here is simply this, that as we rejoice in the many acts of the Lord's faithfulness, in deliverance and otherwise, let us be mindful of the ultimate victory of Jesus and the victory we have in him. This psalm conveys the joy of, that is felt over divine deliverance. It's the king's celebration of victory from the dire straits. And thus, it's our celebration as well as those who are under, under the authority of the king. His joy explodes from two vantage points. One is retrospective, looking backwards. The other is prospective, or looking forward. There is joy over the victory achieved. There is joy over a victory yet anticipated. And there is joy over a victory acclaimed. And that's what we will look at. Remember, the author of Hebrews calls us to keep looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is all bound up in a victory achieved. Verses 1 through 7. There's actually very, kind of two parts to this psalm. And one is, is filled with explosive joy and celebration. The other is dire warning and takes a darker, more serious tone. But there is good reason for both and let us consider the first. A victory achieved. <clears throat> the immediate context of both these psalms, Psalm 20 and 21, is unclear. We don't know just what it is, but we know that David faced many trials, he faced many battles, he faced many enemies, and it is clear that these fit into any and all of them in one way, shape, or form. And even if they are not addressing the same event, as some would suggest... 
they are intended to be read together. And that's why I've dealt with them as a pair. As a request and a response. As a prayer and a subsequent praise. Now consider the psalmist's joyful response, this explosion of joy. What does he rejoice over? He celebrates, he rejoices over uh, a celebrated victory. Verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exalts. That sets the tone for the psalm. Uh, that's what makes this a jubilant hymn of praise to the Lord that, is, that the church is called upon to sing and return prayerfully to the Lord. The tone is set in verse 1, a tone of joy, of exaltation, of focus on God who is the victor and we who join in that victory as his people. The last verse likewise conveys this same jubilant praise. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And so these serve as bookends, as it were, to all that is contained within it. The first and the last. The psalmist celebrates divine victory. He celebrates the victory of the Lord. Secondly, the, the meat of these seven verses is found in verses 2 and 6, where he enumerates the blessings that he is rejoicing over. And here we read, You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. This sounds like a direct response to Psalm 20, where he prayed for the desire of his heart, prayed for his petitions to be answered. For you meet him with rich blessings, and you set a crown of fine gold upon his head. You gave him victory, the victor's crown, as it were. He asked, for, for, he asked life of you, and you gave it to him. And he gave it to him superabundantly. Not not, he didn't just preserve his life. He promised life eternal. And that is the, really the foundation of of the gospel promise, which begins really in the Garden of Eden. His glory is set through, uh, is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow upon him. You make him most blessed forever. You make him glad in the joy of your presence. In answered prayer, he receives his heart's desire. If we delight ourselves in the Lord, says the psalmist in 37.4, he will give us the desires of our heart. He will answer our prayer, bestow upon us rich blessings, provide royal approval for the king, promises life abundantly here and now, and life eternal in the eternity to come. Splendor and majesty are upon his king and upon his people. His abiding presence is promised. All of these things make all the sense in the world when applied directly to Jesus Christ. As he can think of him coming out of the tomb on Easter morning, triumphant, transformed, uh, calling his people together, forgiving uh, sinners, 
and lifting himself up as the hope of the world. All of these things are on his heart and on his lips. How much the King of Kings is seen here in this one king. In one he prays as a priest. Or as you compare the two psalms together, they belong together. In one he pleads for his heart's desire. In the other he is given his heart's desire. In the one he prays as a priest. In the other he is crowned as a king. In one he prays for protection. In the other he is granted life and life eternal. In both he trusts in the name of the Lord. Which brings us to the most important verse, the key verse of this psalm, upon, uh, around which the whole psalm could be built. And that's verse 7. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Compare this with verse 7 of the preceding psalm, which reads similarly, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Here is the key verse. It's akin to the one I just read. And it comes as close in the Old Testament as a confession of faith found anywhere. This, my friends, is a confession of faith. This is what we do when we come to worship the Lord. We confessed our faith this morning using the words of the Apostles' Creed. We may do it with a portion of our confession or our catechism or some other part of historic confess- the historic confessing church. But at the end, confessions are rooted in Scripture. And we come, in essence, every Sunday, and we say with the King, the King trusts in the Lord and through the steadfast love of the Most High, the Gospel, the Good News, that is fully and finally fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, He, we, will not be moved. Now that's wonderful. That is, that is why we keep coming, Sunday after Sunday, to be reminded of the ground of our hope. In days that are deeply distressing and uncertain, we nevertheless stand upon a foundation that is rock solid and we look to a God who does not change. This is our confession. We trust in the steadfast love of the Lord under the new covenant revealed in Jesus Christ, his work upon the cross and God's approval at the empty tomb. A victory achieved. Why wouldn't we rejoice? Why wouldn't we sing? Why wouldn't we be filled with exaltation? Yet there is a dark side to this psalm as well. It comes as a warning. And yet it's still a victory. A victory yet anticipated. The tone changes here in the second half. From rejoicing to retribution. From the prayer of praise to the pronouncement of perdition upon the wicked. It calls to mind what, our, what the Westminster Shorter Catechism 26 says regarding Christ as our King. 
He is so by subduing us to himself. And he does it by a sweet and persuasive compliance. He doesn't ramrod us into the kingdom. He changes our heart. So that we, we willfully desire this king. He does so in ruling and defending us as the Psalms depict. And by restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Where are the enemies of the cross today? They're everywhere. They're fearful. They're powerful, so we think. So they think. And yet we are reminded here that they are nothing. The Lord enthroned in heaven laughs. He scoffs at those who want to break off their chains and throw off the fetters of God's good word. Yet the one enthroned in heaven laughs at their puny remarks about the, un, uh, the insignificance of belief in the living God. To be sure, David may be expressing his confidence here of future victories based upon the Lord's past blessings. And that is certainly legitimate to see this this way in part. But he may also be speaking, as I believe, and others, on behalf of his greater son, the Lord Jesus, whose victory at the cross foreshadows his final victory in his return, when he will indeed set all things right. As Jesus prepared for his death, he told his disciples this, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. There it is. There's Psalm 21 right there. I have overcome the world. Consider what these verses that follow say. It speaks of the certainty of his final judgment. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You don't want to be in that group. And the day those who hate him are revealed. No one can hide from the all-searching judgment of God. Consider the severity of this final judgment that is pictured here. Verse 9. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. Literal? Figurative? Really doesn't matter. This is a dire warning that you do not want to be among those. Why? Because no one can hide and no one can escape the Lord's retributive judgment. Not only so, not only is the, the certainty of his final judgment and its severity, but the totality of his final judgment. Verse 10, you will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of man. 
Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, which the world seems to be bent on doing these days, but listen to this, they will not succeed. Oh, only maybe for a time, but no one can hide, no one can escape, and no one will survive this judgment. Finally, the justice of this final judgment. Verse 12, you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bow. No one can win. Remember what the apostle John said, the beloved apostle, the apostle whom Jesus loved, the one who wrote so much about the love of God, nevertheless said, Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the devil's works. They cannot win. They will not survive. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 10, 6 through 10. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who inflict you and to grant relief to those to, to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on the day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. And so we have two parts of the psalm, a victory achieved, but a victory yet to be anticipated. The first part is, is filled with joy and triumph. The second part is filled with warning and dire concern. The warning is for both warnings, both parts are for us for the people of God and all of those outside our company who may, by God's grace, listen in. Let us heed the warnings and flee to Calvary because Calvary was where God took all of his wrath of judgment and placed it upon his Son, and we see nothing of it in our future. Nothing of it. And that that salvation, that deliverance is available to all who would look to Christ and put their hope in him, young and old alike. But I love how the psalm ends. It doesn't leave us with this dark moment of concern. It takes us back to the very beginning, to where we should end with the joy and the victory celebrated, recognizing now here is a victory to be acclaimed, to be applauded, to be celebrated in full. Verse 13 is fundamentally the people of God in worship. We are called to worship the Lord. We will sing 
and praise. We will sing and praise and we'll keep doing that. The greatest longing in our life, our greatest desire would be not for the next sports event, not for the next concert event, not for the next political event, but when is the time and place where the people of God will be worshiping God one more time, where we can sing and praise, sing and praise, because that's what eternity will be. That's what we long for. As in Psalm 20, this psalm has an uncanny resemblance to the mediatorial work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of God will rejoice because he is faithful to his promises then and now. He will protect the redeemed. He will redeem his people. In other words, the people rejoice in the King of Kings. Two things I leave with you from this psalm. Because this pair reminds us of those rubrics under which we think of Christ's ministry and work. His humiliation and his exaltation. His humili humiliation is his coming into this world incarnate in the flesh, living under the very law he declared from Mount Sinai, being ridiculed, being scoffed at, being mistreated, and eventually being rejected and nailed to a cross. But we also celebrate his exaltation. This mind should be in us, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but he made himself nothing. He was made in human likeness. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, the Father highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that we may join in worship, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thus we rest in the humiliation of Christ, our Savior. We rest in that. For the king trusts in the Lord and the king's people trust in him. Humiliation always comes before exaltation. The cross always comes before the crown. The theology of the cross must Give, must give way, or the theology of glory must always give way to the theology of the cross. The already comes before the not yet. The valley of the shadow of death before we ascend the mountain. That's the life that we are called to live. But what a glorious life. Because we not only rest in the humiliation of Christ our Savior for our eternal hope, but we anticipate the exaltation the final exaltation of Christ our Lord. Every knee will bow. Every knee. Some knees will bow broken because they were unwilling to do so in this life when opportunity was given. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, says Paul, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches 
of his grace. And concerning this salvation, says Peter, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was given you, given was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Perhaps even Psalm 20 and 21 was on their mind. As Luke says in 24, verse 26, it was, not, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And why should it be any different for us? When times are hard, we pray. When times are jubilant, we praise. There is a prayer for the day of trouble. And there is a praise for the day of triumph. Let us own these and anticipate with joy. Our gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, may we take these two wonderful psalms to heart. May we see in them the Lord Jesus who walked, walked these psalms through in our place and gained the victory that we in him now enjoy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.